You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 3rd of November 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the programme ahead, tensions mount on the Korean peninsula after North Korea fires more missiles, possibly including an ICBM. We'll get the latest with the former British ambassador to Pyongyang. Plus... Io sono Giorgia, sono una donna, sono una madre, sono italiana, sono cristiana, non me lo toglierete! One month after her election victory, Italy's new leader is off to Brussels. Just how warm will the welcome from the EU be for the right-wing Giorgia Maloney? Then... Political ploys aside, it does have to be said that immigration has been one of US President Joe Biden's thorniest challenges since coming to office. It started in many ways with the simple perception that Biden would be more welcoming than his hardline anti-immigration predecessor, Donald Trump. Our Washington correspondent brings us up to date on the US midterms race. Then we'll cross to Cairo to ask why, in a country that values its past so much, are historic monuments being destroyed. We'll get a flounce of fashion news, a hit of the front pages, and we'll end the show with news of the London Korean Film Festival. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. North Korea has fired multiple ballistic missiles over the past two days, including a possible failed intercontinental ballistic missile earlier today. Japan's Prime Minister Fumio Kishida called it an outrage, and Japanese officials issued an emergency warning to citizens living near the flight path. Well, for more on the mounting tensions on the Korean peninsula, I'm joined by John Everard, the former British ambassador to North Korea. John, many thanks for coming on the show. What's been going on militarily? Well, yesterday we had the largest number of North Korean missile launches ever. I think the total stands at 25, a variety of short and medium-range missiles. Um, Then this morning, as you just mentioned, uh, we had a further three, including what looks like a failed ICBM. There was a big shock yesterday when one of the missiles actually splashed down in uh, the sea just off the coast of South Korea. Uh, far too close for comfort, and uh, the South Koreans protested loudly. And so what exactly was the ICBM? What type and what's it capable of? Uh, We don't yet know. The Japanese haven't yet released full data, but it seems to have been a long-range one that failed. Uh, It seems to have have, have, uh, actually come down uh, some way away from where it was supposed to. And how close to inhabited areas are these missiles, including that one, falling? And are they affecting citizens in the region? Well, the one that fell into the sea was about 50 kilometres from the nearest South Korean town. Um, The others have been splashed down a fair way off the coast. But 50 kilometres, say the South Koreans, is far too close for comfort. And the missile this morning um, had various parts of Japan uh, diving for air raid shelters. Uh, An outrage, as the Prime Minister, the Prime Minister Kishida called it. Now, we've often seen missiles exchanged before. Is it more serious this time? The the sheer numbers make it much more serious. The fact that they, for the first time, 
splashed a missile down actually so close to the South Korean coast uh, is an escalation. Uh, If the ICBM this morning had followed its trajectory, that would probably have been even worse. We don't know because we don't know exactly where it was headed. Uh, But the, the real fear is that this is a kind of overture to a main act and that what the North Koreans are doing is presenting themselves as victims, as they so often do, uh, in the face of the continuing uh, South Korean-U.S. Uh, exercises, which end tomorrow, and that under cover of that, quote, provocation, unquote, they will conduct a further nuclear test. This will be their seventh, and that, of course, would be an outrage. Now, of course, there have been missiles flying the other way. South Korea's retaliated. Yes, uh, three missiles uh, fired into the sea off the North Korean coast, uh, to land precisely the same distance from the North Korean coast as the missile did that landed close to the South Korean coast. Uh, the, the South Koreans making the point that they too have missiles and that indeed theirs are better, have longer range and are more reliable. The North Koreans will have taken the point. Mm. Now, you talked about the uh, uh, exercises that, that are going on uh, and that, of course, I think it's called Operation Vigilance Storm. But in terms of timing, are there any other reasons why North Korea should choose to do this now? For instance, I understand there are high-level talks going on between the US and South Korea alongside those exercises. Yes, I don't think the talks themselves are part of the timeline. I think the North Koreans may well have their eyes on the US midterm elections on Tuesday. Uh, They have a history of conducting major provocations at significant dates in the US political calendar. And of course, making sure that everybody involved in those elections realize that North Korea cannot be ignored uh, would tick big North Korean boxes. Mm. Now, are North and South Korea in talks at all to to, uh, just diffuse this this current tension? No, uh, there are hardly any uh, conversations going on between the two Koreas. Um, Ever since uh, right-wing President uh, Yoon came to power uh, and made clear that he was not interested in continuing uh, the the failed policies of his predecessor, which involved a lot of attempts to engage North Korea, uh, but no actual benefits at the end of the day. The whole thing just fell apart. But the North Koreans have condemned him, condemned his policy, been very rude to him personally, and have tested more weapons uh, in a fairly short period than we've seen for a long time. And is the South Korean population in agreement with with the leaders? I mean, South Korea is in a a horrible place at the moment, mourning as they are for this horrible incident that happened at at Halloween. Do do the the citizens of South Korea feel that, that it's being dealt with correctly? Uh, It's hard to say whether they feel the South Korean response to the most recent uh, uh, outrages uh, is correct. We haven't yet got data on that. Uh, The data in general suggests that uh, President Yoon's opinion polls are quite low, but they're low not because South Koreans worry that he's mishandling North Korea. They're low because, uh, well, the the, the terrible tragedy in 81, the crushing of all those people, hasn't held but poor economic performance, rising inflation, uh, threats of unemployment, and a general sense that South Korea is not going well. Uh, There's a kind of numbness in South Korea. South Koreans have seen so many North Korean missile launches that more launches, even a great salvo like yesterday's, doesn't really frighten people in the way that you think it might. Mm. As you say, Operation Vigilance Storm is about to end. The midterms are on Tuesday. Do you think that the hostilities will ease off after both of those events? It's hard to say because 
that would depend largely on what the North Koreans actually do. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, the uh, South Koreans, the Americans and the Japanese uh, together said that if North Korea did conduct a further nuclear test, there would be uh, very serious consequences. So if North Korea does go ahead and detonate uh, probably two devices rather than one, they cleared both of the tunnels in their nuclear test site, uh, we will see what those consequences are and, of course, what the North Korean response to them is. Mm. And at that point, we may be in a kind of upward spiral of escalation that might be difficult to stop. Uh, but if it were to slow down, I mean, who's going to take the initiative to de-escalate? Well, in the past, sometimes the North has and sometimes the South. It depends largely who blinks first in this rather strange game of international poker. Uh, who will do it this time? Well, let's wait and see. And in terms of international poker, how has the UN reacted and is there much international censure that can still be brought to bear? Oh, lots of censure. Uh, stronger and stronger language. Uh, statements of increasing intensity from senior world figures. I don't think North Korea cares a fig. John Everard, thank you very much indeed. This is The Globalist on Monocle 24. The Foreign Desk is Monocle 24's weekly global affairs programme. We tackle the world's biggest news stories as well as those left untold. If actually you speak to the ordinary people, their aspirations is for a unified country, whether you talk to business people, to school teachers, to market traders and so on and so forth, across the board, is they want to see their country recreated as it was, only this time as a democratic, accountable system. Our expert guests offer in-depth analysis and first-hand experience. In one of the Ebola treatment centres I went to had been burned down by a community that were very resentful and frightened of Ebola, and they still have a bunker in the middle. They've dug a big, deep bunker where they can hide if people come and shoot at them. The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, is available every Saturday from midday London time, right here on Monocle 24. It's ten past eight in Brussels, ten past seven here in London. Italy's new Prime Minister, Giorgia Maloney, will be in Brussels today. It's her first foreign trip as leader and she'll meet with Ursula von der Leyen and other European leaders. Well, to look at what we might expect, I'm joined by Suzanne Lynch, the chief Brussels correspondent for Politico, and Enrico Franceschini, who is the London correspondent for La Repubblica. Uh, Thank you both for joining us today. Enrico, when Maloney was elected, she used her maiden speech to assure allies of Italy's commitment to the European Union. How did she set out her vision for interaction with the EU? Well, um, she's going to Brussels uh, with um, a few positions so in contrast uh, with the previous government, a harder line on uh, migration and uh, um, a, a attitude perhaps closer to some of the East European countries of the EU. She said, for example, the other day that uh, um, her position is don't do in Brussels what can be done best in Rome. And at the same time, don't do alone what uh, can be done better together as a, a union, as a European Union. Um, uh, the issue of migration can create uh, tensions. Uh, she does She does not speak openly of a naval blockade, but uh, is something similar. Uh, and But it's not so different from what uh, 
previous Italian governments have done in the past when the um, center-right was in power. For example, when Matteo Salvini, the leader of the League, was uh, uh, Minister of Interior. So it's, uh, it's not a war against the European Union. Uh, it's a slightly harder uh, line. Uh, she said she's in favor of a confederation, not of a, of a European Union becoming a, a federation, but this is also a position that is shared by other European countries. Yes. I mean, Suzanne, on the eve of Maloney's victory, Ursula von der Leyen suggested that the Italian could erode democratic standards. Is there any evidence she's changed her mind? Will it be a warm welcome? Well, I think we're all going to be watching the body language when Melanie arrives here today. She has this series of meetings with the three leaders of the institutions, Metzola, the, the head of the parliament, and then von der Leyen, and then Ed Charles Michel, the head of the European Council. Uh, and he's the person who chairs those EU summits when Melanie will be sitting around with all the other, the other 26 EU leaders. Uh, the next summit is scheduled for December. Um, but I think uh, one of the issues will be, you know, will a lot of our comments have these been just, to, uh, these have been designed for a domestic audience where when she's in Brussels, she may temper these. I think um, one of the big uh, focuses of the discussions today will be on e economy. And tomorrow, on Friday, Melanie is due to sign off on, on their budget, on the Italian budget, with her own ministers. Her, one of her economy ministers is actually in Germany today, meeting the German finance minister. And I think she is going to be speaking a lot about um, those issues around the budget with European Commission officials. The key thing to remember here is that Italy is in receipt of a huge amount of money from the EU's recovery fund. That was the big COVID recovery fund that was introduced and it's by far the biggest recipient and Melanie knows this uh, she is not going to say something or do something that's going to jeopardize uh, continuing to receive the, this cash because the way it works is you have to reach certain milestones to get the next tranche of money and now she has talked before about making changes to those conditions that were imposed on Italy um, but one can imagine some kind of compromise on this. So, for example, the European Commission are already saying that because of the energy crisis, inflation, countries, all countries are allowed to make changes, maybe investment on energy, etc. Uh, so we could see a situation where there will be some changes, would be given the green light, and Melanie would be able to uh, point to these to show that she maybe stood up to Brussels, if you like, mm. whereas in fact Brussels was already going to allow Italy that room for manoeuvre anyway. So I think that's going to be a huge focus of the discussions today. And Enrico, there are many areas where Meloni and the EU converge, though. I mean, the war in Ukraine is one. Where else might they find common ground? Well, um, as you mentioned, the war in Ukraine, against which uh, some members of the coalition uh, the new Italian coalition, government coalition, was very critical in the past. Meloni said clearly, we are on the same line as the United States and the European Union. There will be no changes in our support to, to Kiev. This is very important. Another one is, the, as I mentioned, the a closest, a close relationship with the United States, so a, a very Atlantist uh, um, foreign policy. Um, um, so, um, as uh, my colleague said, it's some of the things she said are more for domestic consumptions uh, to to show a, a difference with the with the government of Mario Draghi. But in practical, there might not be uh, 
huge changes. And uh, she, I suspect the body language also will be positive uh, in the sense that we have to remember she's the first woman prime minister in Italy in Italian history. Uh, she's young. Uh, she's a newcomer. Uh, and so there will be at the same time some uh, air of novelty around there that uh, will have a might have a positive spin in Brussels as well. Mm. Uh, Suzanne, Maloney says in her new book, which is by the journalist Bruno uh, Vesper, that EU common foreign policy is lacking as the union wastes time debating secondary issues like gender identity. Uh, and also, as, as, as Enrico mentioned, uh, she says that she views the EU as a federal institution. How is, is the union going to, to react to comments like that? Well, on the one hand, they're going to very much welcome the idea of a stronger European foreign policy, even as they would dispute the fact that the EU does indeed debate gender identity. It doesn't, frankly. Um, so, uh, But uh, in terms of foreign policy, this is a, an area of shared interest for a lot of the bigger countries in Europe, particularly France. It was quite significant that the French President Emmanuel Macron, who had a very strong relationship with Maloney's predecessor, Mario Draghi, visited Rome. Now, he had been due to visit Rome anyway, um, just after the Italian election, but did meet Meloni. And uh, I think France and the France-Italian connection will be interesting to watch over the next few months. Um, the, the idea that Europe needs more strategic autonomy, that it needs to be more responsible for itself, is something that Macron has been preaching. Um, and we have seen a call by a lot of senior EU figures like Charles Michel, like Borrell, the EU foreign policy chief for stronger European foreign policy. The fact that she is committed to this um, will be welcomed by a lot of uh, countries, also, of course, by uh, countries in the East. Um, So I think the fact that she is that kind of committed Atlanticist, um, even though her uh, ethical, her moral uh, views are very much on the right, um, I don't know if we're going to have the same standoff between Brussels and Italy that we have for example, between Brussels and the Polish government and Brussels and the Hungarian government, where they have clashed over rule of law concerns. It is concerning, perhaps, that uh, Melanie delayed the, implica- in, in the introduction of judicial reforms uh, in Italy. Now, she's saying correctly that she still has a few months to do this by the end of the year, but that would have been uh, kind of an alarm bell, I think, for a lot of uh, watchers in Brussels. So let's see how that uh, emerges. But in terms of foreign policy and economic policy, the areas where the EU does have confidence, she seems to be singing from the same hymn sheet on other issues like abortion, um, those kind of more social issues where she takes a very right wing stance. They're out of the EU's competency anyway. And so she's more likely to make changes and have an impact there on a domestic level rather than an EU level. Mm. Uh, Enrico, after this meeting, she's off to the Climate Change Conference in Egypt. What are her policies on the environment? Uh, Well, um, more of a free hand for uh, uh, industries that uh, want to do, you know, uh, gas and oil uh, and and research and uh, um, but um, on on the environment also, she has not taken uh, a line completely out of uh, line uh, from uh, from the EU or from what is the uh, Italian uh, tradition. Of course, they put business; they kind of put business first and, and plan second, but uh, not in a, in a revolutionary way. Meloni has been very. Um, um, careful in the first weeks uh, in power uh, to take a, a moderate uh, uh, 
uh, moderate steps in whatever she did. Um, there has been a stronger hand by the police uh, against a rave party, for example, uh, that was not authorized. But uh, there has been some uh, uh, fascist, uh, neo-fascist uh, demonstrations in Mussolini's uh, hometown on the anniversary of his death. But this has happened every year uh, in the past too. And uh, in fact, the polls uh, the, that have been taken after the election show her party g- still growing. There is a decline of their partners, the former Ber- the Ber- Silvio Berlusconi's party, Forza Italia and the League. And the real issue in Italy is the division and the, and the weakness of the left that uh, has lost the election and is trying to find a new identity, has not found it yet. Enrico, thank you. That's Enrico Francesini. And thanks also to Suzanne Lynch. Uh, And Enrico was just mentioning the clampdown on raves. And I know that um, our uh, Chiara Ramella will be speaking about that later on today on Monocle 24. Now, still to come on the programme. Political ploys aside, it does have to be said that immigration has been one of US President Joe Biden's thorniest challenges since coming to office. It started in many ways with the simple perception that Biden would be more welcoming than his hardline anti-immigration predecessor, Donald Trump. Our Washington correspondent reports on one of the issues dominating the campaign ahead of the midterm U.S. elections. This is The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, We bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Now, Egypt is known for its ancient architecture and the government makes every effort to protect the pyramids and other equally old buildings. However, this does not seem to be the case for houses designated as historic monuments which date back to the 1800s. A gentrification project is underway in the country and its critics argue that the destruction is destroying Egyptian culture. Well, Yasmin El-Rashidi is an Egyptian writer and the author of Chronicle of a Last Summer, a novel of Egypt. She joins us now from Cairo. Uh, Yasmin, many thanks for coming on Monocle 24. Um, In 2008, Prime Minister Mustafa Madbouli announced the Cairo 2050 project, an initiative which aimed to transform the heart of Cairo into a financial and business centre. Is this project ongoing and how has it been carried out? It is ongoing to some, you know, in, in, in some, to some extent. I mean, I think a lot has changed, but absolutely the, the idea of turning, transforming Cairo as we have always known it, the historic city, into a financial and business district um, is, is happening at a very fast speed. Uh, neighborhoods, old buildings, old homes are being uh, demolished to make way for uh, skyscrapers and you know this this idea of the modern building. Mm. Um, 
So what are the core drivers of gentrification in Egypt? There's, I mean, Egypt, obviously, it's a, you know, it's the, I'll speak of Cairo specifically, it's such an old city. And I think that's part of its charm. And it's, it's what makes it's what makes it special. Um, and I think this, this new government has has the impression that if you demolish the old, if you get rid of the old, um, and you create something that looks more like Dubai, but perhaps a, a worse version of Dubai, that's going to bring in income, it's going to bring in investment, it's going to bring in tourism. Um, we do have, you know, a, a huge areas of land that are what are considered informal settlements, which are buildings that have been built sort of haphazardly, um, and those are being pulled down. But alongside uh, uh, historic listed homes and buildings and neighborhoods are coming down, including in the, in the UNESCO World Heritage Site of the El Khalifa neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you talk about areas of, of, of um, informal settlement. I mean, is this slum clearance and what happens to those people who've been displaced? The government considers it slum clearance. When you actually look at these neighborhoods, they're far from you know the 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 kind the, the idea in one's in the mind's eye of what a slum is. Um, but they are they were built uh, on bribes, so without permission. Um, the they are being for some of them. You know, I think it it all depends on how much attention the the clearing gets. So in some cases, the clearings have been in the heart of the city. They've gotten a lot of media attention and the government has been forced to offer um, alternatives. In some cases, they've offered monetary compensation, nothing that compares actually to what their apartments were worth. In some cases, they've offered to relocate them to, um, to, to, you know, sort of affordable housing on the outskirts of the city. Um, in neither case does it compensate actually for, for what has been done to them. Mm. Um, but in many, many cases, there is no compensation and people have to fight to get, you know, to try to get either monetary or housing compensation. Now, there's one specific example I know you're concerned about, uh, Sakna Bay. Mm. Tell us about that. So Sakna Bay, it's a house that dates back to 1860. It's located in the Khalifa neighborhood of, of Cairo, which is in the same area where um, Ibn Tulun Mosque is. It's it that area is you know is considered Islamic Cairo, which is you know the where the where the city originated. Um, and Sakna was the first um, female singer in modern Egyptian history. Um, and this was her house, and she received the title Bay. Um, the it's it's sort of like um, it's a, it's a given title. It's I suppose it's the equivalent of Sir in in England, um, and she received that title. And so this this was her house. The the government is is very fast trying to delist and demolish um, old houses in that area uh, for two reasons. They, I think it's much cheaper for them to demolish and build anew rather than restore. Um, and then we are dealing, I think, with a bit of a militaristic mindset, which is, you know, sort of demolish, conquer, it's yours, and then 
make it your own. Mm. Um, and so we're quite concerned about this, especially because it's private property. This house belongs to several historians. They have tried for many years to get the necessary permits to restore it. Um, they've been blocked at every corner. Um, they own other houses too in other neighborhoods. And unfortunately, and those have already been demolished in a similar situation. Um, again, they had tried, Darbil Labena is, is a neighborhood nearby, historic. They tried to get permission to restore their houses, they were stopped. Um, the government said that it would come in and try and do something to the neighborhood and essentially demolished the majority of the neighborhood. Mm. And I wonder if there's any organized movement to halt the demolition and if the government is listening and if the fact that the whole world is about to descend on Egypt for COP will make any difference. You know, we're trying so hard. We've There have been letters sent to the prime minister, to various levels of government, um, uh, obviously, you know, petitions, uh it's it's tricky. It's tricky for owners to bring about uh, law cases against the government, given the political times we live in. Um, there's talk of organizing an actual standing protest um, around the house, which is also risky, but I think it's going to go ahead. Uh, risky because in Egypt, you can't, uh, gatherings of 10 people or more are outlawed, so you can be arrested but we're going to try unfortunately this government is moving so fast ahead with its plans um, that it doesn't seem to care um, and it doesn't seem to be able to recognize when you know people stand up and say well this is this is what people come to Egypt for you know it's this history it's this heritage it's this culture unfortunately this they don't seem to understand that Yasmin, thank you very much indeed. That's Yasmin El-Rashidi. Here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. Benjamin Netanyahu appears to be on course to reclaim his old job as Israel's Prime Minister. With 90% of the vote counted, Mr Netanyahu's religious and right-wing coalition is on track to control a majority in Parliament after Israel's fifth election in less than four years. Foreign ministers from the G7 group of nations will discuss how best to coordinate further support for Ukraine when they meet today in Germany. The two-day meeting follows recent Russian attacks on energy infrastructure that have caused widespread power cuts. And HSBC, the biggest commercial lender in Hong Kong, is set to raise its key interest rates to the highest level in 14 years. The move was prompted after the Hong Kong Monetary Authority raised its base rate to a fresh 14-year high of 4.25%. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. United States, Hispanic voters make up an increasingly large share of the population, but they're not necessarily voting the way one might think. Monocle's Washington correspondent Chris Chermack reports on how the immigration and the concerns of Hispanic voters are shaping next week's congressional midterm elections. Immigration hasn't really gotten too much attention from the media in these congressional midterm elections, but in an environment as polarizing as this one, it's probably not a surprise to hear that the priorities differ wildly by political party. Immigration still resonates among conservative-inclined voters especially, which is why Republicans have been stepping up their campaigns on the topic in the run-up to next week's congressional midterm elections, also rather shamelessly linking it with crime, another topic that's high on voters' agendas. 
How did we get here? Low wages, high inflation, record crime, illegal immigration from places as far away as Pakistan. Our cities are a mess. Public services are a nightmare. But this ad is by the far-right group calling itself Citizens for Sanity, linked to the former Trump advisor Stephen Miller. And one of the things that's interesting about this ad is that it's actually sort of targeting Hispanic voters. You know what I see? No mas. Citizens for Sanity paid for this ad. There had long been this assumption that Republicans' hard line on the border under Donald Trump would turn off Hispanic voters, a growing demographic. But that's not necessarily the case. You will find that there's diversity in views among Latinos on some of these issues. So Cuban Americans may have different views on, say, the deportation of those who are in the country illegally compared with, say, Mexican Americans who are the children of immigrant parents. This is Mark Hugo Lopez, director of race and ethnicity research at the Pew Research Center. And here, in many ways, the differences in polarization between Democrats and Republicans among Latinos mirrors what we see for the general U.S. public. And frankly, a number of other issues like abortion, about health care, about any issue around the economy. You do see some differences by partisanship among Latinos, which in many ways reflects the general U.S. mood. Beyond the topic of immigration, Mark says that while Latinos tend to view Democrats as caring more about them and working harder for their vote, they don't necessarily see a big difference between the political parties on many issues. And beyond that, it's also important to note that the issues Latinos care about are not really that different from other American voters. Immigration has never been a top issue for Latino voters in all the surveys we've done at the Pew Research Center back into the mid-2000s, and this year is no different. Latinos generally have seen the economy as the top issue in determining how they're going to vote this year, and frankly, that's not very different from the general U.S. public. This helps to explain why, in Florida, for example, Governor Ron DeSantis is on track for a second term in office. This despite taking a hard line on immigration, and engaging in political stunts, like literally flying a group of Venezuelans up to Martha's Vineyard in New England. He's now being sued by the migrants for making false promises, but the political victory appears to be his nonetheless. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has been playing a similar game, busing nearly 20,000 migrants to New York City last month in a sort of challenge to progressives, who claim immigration is not a problem in the United States. Political ploys aside, it does have to be said that immigration has been one of U.S. President Joe Biden's thorniest challenges since coming to office. It started in many ways with the simple perception that Biden would be more welcoming than his hardline anti-immigration predecessor, Donald Trump. And to some extent, Biden has obliged, easing some of the restrictions that Trump had put in place, until that message resulted in even more people coming prompting Biden more recently to reimpose some of the restrictions he had eased and trying to offer legal pathways that encourage asylum seekers from Venezuela, for example, not to come to the border in the first place. That message had clearly gotten back to people in South America that if you make it to the U.S.-Mexico border, you'll be allowed in, and once you're allowed in, you'll be able to stay. So now that the door is largely closed to Venezuelans at the border, I think that will influence people's migration decisions. This is Julia Gellett of the Migration Policy Institute. I do think that people are watching to see how this works out. If, you know, this combination of Title 42 and also a parole program succeeds in diverting people from irregular migration to more regular channels, that could be applied to other countries. 
The program she's talking about, at least in theory, could offer a way out of the immigration crisis for the United States, if it was expanded beyond Venezuelans. The idea is pretty simple. Migrants who can get private sponsors to vouch for them, also financially, will be allowed to fly to the United States directly and legally, instead of coming through the US-Mexico border. One of the problems, as with so much of immigration policy in the United States, is that these parole programs have never been properly approved by Congress. Instead, Joe Biden has used various federal loopholes that Republicans could try to close again if they regain control of Congress after the midterms. The Immigration and Nationality Act limits DHS's authority to use parole on a case-by-case -case basis for urgent humanitarian or significant public benefit reasons. This is Elizabeth Jacobs, Director of Regulatory Affairs and Policy for the Conservative Center for Immigration Studies and a former official within the Department of Homeland Security's U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. Congress made clear when it has continually narrowed DHS's discretion over the years that this is not meant to be a replacement for an immigration policy. It is meant to be used sparingly. Congressional approval would of course require the kind of grand bargain on immigration reform that has eluded so many U.S. presidents over the years. But even Elizabeth Jacobs acknowledges that this kind of carrot-and-stick approach could be palatable to conservatives if it were put to a vote. The general strategy with requiring aliens to have a supporter in the United States that can provide financial and other support to these aliens is a way to address political concerns that the general public might have. In other words, as with so many issues, there probably would be a path forward on immigration if American politicians could do a little less bickering and a little more governing. Chris Chermak there. You're listening to The Globalist. It's 37 minutes past seven here in London, and that's 8.37 in Zurich. And we'll continue now with today's newspapers. Well, joining me in the studio on this programme for the first time is Tim Dowling, who's a columnist and a presenter of the podcast Insult My Intelligence. Uh, Tim, many uh, a big welcome to, to The Globalist. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, let's start with Brazil, because this is a story that's being reported about Bolsonaro. As we know, the country uh, had an election recently. Bolsonaro lost. He hasn't actually uh, confirmed that. <laughs> no, he has not conceded defeat. And since the election on Sunday, everybody has been sort of waiting to see what will happen. And uh, Bolsonaro's supporters have taken to the roads. They've blocked, I think there are seven, 732 highways were blocked. Flights were cancelled and uh, goods basically stopped moving. And as you say, he has not conceded defeat, but he has gone on Twitter and he has asked his supporters to... Uh, get off the highway, basically. He said, uh, I know you're upset, me too, but we have to keep our heads straight. I will make an appeal to you, clear the highways. Now, he still hasn't conceded defeat. And as like the United States, Brazil has a hugely long transition period. I don't think he comes into uh, Lula, his who, who beat him in the election, doesn't assume power until January the 1st, I don't think. Mm. So we've got a long ways to go. But although he hasn't conceded defeat publicly, the, the idea is uh, people are saying basically that privately he has accepted the result. Um, his vice president has said there's no sense in whining anymore. We lost the game. There's nothing to complain about. Um, and the idea that the mechanisms of transition are underway, that because he's president, he's given permission for that. Effectively, that means he has conceded defeat. But mm. 
I would not like to make any predictions. At no, this point. because I mean, some of his supporters are calling for military action. Yes, they've been gathering around military bases, asking the military to come out. And uh, I saw one of them on television the other day. Basically, they said, you know, isn't that sort of anti-democratic? And they said, democracy has been dead in this country for a long time. Dear, dear. Let's go to Albania now, because the Albanian president, uh, Rama, is reacting, Eddie Rama, is reacting to what he's calling, um, I think, racist uh, and, and insane reasoning. In- insane. Um, uh, a word that's often used in conjunction with this woman's name. She is the new British Home Secretary, Suella Braverman. Yeah, uh, she's been under fire for some uh, uh, irregularities, to say the least, but also some terrible trouble at a, a s- asylum detention centre in Kent, which is hugely overcrowded. And the basic problem is that no, uh, none of these migrants who are coming in small boats across the channel have been processed. Something like 4% have been processed in the last year. And she, uh, in her defence, basically blamed Albanian criminals for the problem and said that the, if the Labour Party were in charge, they would, they would allow this country to be flooded. And invasion was the word she used. Uh, and Eddie Rama, the president of Albania, prime minister, I should say, uh, has hit back on Twitter and, and told the UK not to blame its policy failures on uh, insane reasoning by the British Home Secretary. Um, and what he, in fact, said is said, repeating the same things and expecting different results mm. is insane. Um, it turns out that about 39,000 people have come in small boats this year, which is uh, record-breaking. And about 12,000 of those are Albanians, uh, which is, you know, more than, a th- more than a quarter, less than a third. Yeah, and I think people are saying that that's because the Albanian gangs are now, it, criminal gangs are in charge in France. But maybe I'm just as guilty now for, for blaming Albanian criminals. I mean, w- why are they coming, why are they wanting to leave Albania? They want to leave Albania. I mean, the, the, some of them are seeking asylum here, uh, uh, saying that they've been trafficked. And the question is, how many of them have been trafficked? How many of them are just here looking? So, some, sometimes they come here and there are, you know, presumably Albanian criminals in that group who come and they stay for about six months, uh, make enough money to go home and go home. But because of the processing backlog, we have no idea how many of these. And at present, something like between 75 and 85 percent of these uh, asylum uh, claims are accepted. Mm. So, I mean, the backlog is the backlog. That's the problem. Yeah. And and of course, as 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 the Albanian prime minister says, uh, this government, the British government is using his country's citizens as, as scapegoats for failed immigration policies. And that's the root of the problem is that the Home Office has been mismanaged for a very long yeah. time. Uh, and the problems are just getting worse and worse. And, and the, the rhetoric is very dangerous because there are some mm. there are 170,000 Albanians living in in the UK right now. A lot of them are business people. A lot of them have been here for a long time, are European citizens and, mm. and have been here since before 2008. And the words like swarms and hordes and invasions, we're talking about people who only leave their countries because they've got no alternative. Why would you get into a small boat and risk your life? No, and at this time of year, I mean, the weather is terrible right now. This is a a dreadful time to try to make this crossing. And there is no, what uh, Braverman's critics would say, there is no legitimate route to asylum other than coming here in a small boat because we've left no, we've left nothing else open to them. 
Let's turn and look at Russia, an equally grim story, although a bit of good news here from the New York Times because Russia has rejoined the grain deal, which, of course, it suspended <clears throat> over the weekend. Very quick U-turn there from Putin. <laughs> yes. I mean, a, a lot of people are saying that this is a good example of calling. If you call Putin's bluff, he will back down. Basically, he threatened to suspend this grain deal with, uh, among others, Turkey and the UN have entered to move grain through Ukrainian ports into basically the developing world, which relies on it. And the war has caused huge disruptions. So when the Crimea Bridge was attacked, he he threatened to pull out. And then when the Navy was attacked by Ukrainian forces uh, earlier this week, he he said, we're pulling out. But but he has has now backed down. And it's sort of unclear why, other than the fact that he had no plan as to how to pull out, and it became clear that the UN and Turkey were committed to continuing. And I assume also, of course, pressure from the global south, which are really his only allies. He really needs the support of, of, of much of Africa and some of Latin America yeah. to, to, to give him any allies at all. <laughs> um, let's finally turn and look at China. Um, this, is, this is a story from the South China Morning Post about luxury accessories. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is uh, Li Xiaoli, she's called, uh, who is a... An official in northern China, in the sort of Inner Mongolian autonomous region, who appeared uh, on television, I believe, uh, or at a at a meeting, wearing what appears to be uh, luxury earrings from Van Cleef and Arpels, and a scarf, possibly from Hermes, uh, which uh, the earrings are uh, reported to be worth four thousand two hundred U.S. dollars. Um, internet users spotted it, and she's now being investigated. This is a big deal. <laughs> I can see that, but it's, it's China, so wouldn't you assume that they were fake? Um, well, this ha- apparently this happened uh, last year, where uh, uh, another official was spotted wearing uh, an Hermes leather belt, uh, and it did turn out to be fake after an investigation. <laughs> uh, Tim, thank you very much indeed. That was Tim Darling, and this is The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Well, it's time to talk fashion now with the retail expert and brand consultant, Rebecca Tay. Now, Rebecca, we've just been talking about very, very expensive accessories uh, worn by a Chinese official and speculating whether they were real or not. And of course, that's always a problem in the luxury goods market. Uh, but Bottega Veneta will now offer a lifetime warranty for its handbags. Tell us more. Yeah, that's right. Um, I like that story. That was quite an interesting story, but you're right. Bottega Veneta is launching what they're calling a certificate of craft, which is essentially, as you said, it's a lifetime warranty for their handbags specifically. Um, and it's basically a digital and physical card that indicates the serial number of the bag. And from November, so basically from now on, you can take that bag in, you can have it serviced, you can have it refreshed, you can have it repaired, and all for free. It's all complimentary. It's a service that they're saying is to you know designed to extend the longevity of their bags. And of course, it proves that the bag is real and not a fake. Yes, exactly. So, you know, there are ways of faking through serial numbers, but if you were going to bring that bag in to have it serviced, obviously they would check the serial number and and establish that it's definitely authentic before servicing it for you. So I have one that's about 20 years old and it's falling apart. Can I take that in under that? (laughs) 
Do you know what? That was one of the things that I was wondering as well, but unfortunately it's only for new purchases. Mm. So, you know, it's a, it's a good initiative. It does make you wonder if this is, you know, a marketing ploy to kind of try and incite new purchases, but maybe that's just my cynical side. Yeah, <laughs> well, so this is a, a great initiative from them, and it, it is a way of kind of tracking the bag as well as giving a guarantee. Now, Chloe is doing something similar with a digital ID yes. program. Yes, exactly. So this is a program that they're calling Chloe Vertical. Um, it's quite interesting. All the brands always have to give it a name. So Chloe Vertical is basically something similar. It's a digital digital ID that they're actually applying to the item. So they're applying it to not just handbags, but also shoes and ready-to-wear. Um, the idea is that you can scan this. You can then um, not just authenticate it, but also kind of trace back all of the materials. So Chloe um, was one of the first luxury houses to be certified B Corp, which means that it's you know, gone through a whole checklist of making sure that all the processes and production and materials that are used are as sustainable or as circular as possible. Um, so the idea here is that you could scan that digital ID, you could trace back right back, you know, where the farm or where the tannery or, you know, where the materials were actually sourced. Um, you could also authenticate that, that item. And the idea for Chloe's vertical in terms of authenticating it is that you can then um, have an easier time reselling it. So again, it's about lo- extending the longevity of that item. But in this case, it's for the secondhand market. So, you know, ensuring that it's authentic when you then sell it on to a new owner um, and having that guarantee of authenticity. And then the third goal of Chloe vertical is also to kind of offer care and repair advice. So, so similar to Bottega in that sense, but really kind of getting a little bit more advice and information on how to really care for your item. Yeah. And of course, environmental concerns, as you say, you can trace the provenance of the product. Now, that's something that Marks & Spencer is very concerned about too, along with other big uh, high street stores, is their environmental impact. And so they've launched yeah. a new capsule. Tell us about this. Yeah, so they've launched a capsule. They've actually partnered with a company called Higher Street for about a year now. Um, but now they've launched a new initiative with, Hi- with Higher Street where you can essentially rent capsule collections or capsule outfits. So at the moment, I think there's about 80 or just under 80 items that you could rent. Um, and the idea is that you rent them, I think there's kind of packages of five items, seven items, or I think nine or 10 items. You can rent them from anywhere for five days to up to a month. Um, and the cost is, I think they're saying it's about 40 pounds for those for five items, for example. Um, and the idea is that you can then wear those items. You can still have that kind of newness in your wardrobe when you then return those items without having to kind of contribute to this sort of cycle of fast fashion and throwaway fashion. I mean, is renting greener, though? I mean, or could it, in fact, be worse for the environment? As this, this uh, article we're looking at from The Guardian says it might be. Yeah, there's definitely been a lot of um, kind of pushback or a kind of questioning of this. I think there was one study that said that it's not as sustainable because there's a lot of, um, especially with the rental services that are out there, there's a lot of added packaging and um, uh, carbon emissions that come from posting the items and delivering them all over the place. Um, but at the same, and at the same time, I think that study showed that you wear these items about 200 times, which for a lot of fast fashion items is definitely not the case. Mm. Um, so I think, I think it's, it's you know, it's speaking to customers that want to do something. Maybe this, maybe this isn't 100% the right thing yet, but at least it's sort of moving us in the right direction, I think, and at least making us think more about kind of where we're getting our fashion items from, how many times we're wearing them, what we're doing with them afterwards. Um, just being a little bit more conscious, I guess, overall. I wonder, though, what the market is for hiring high street clothes. I can understand hiring something that costs thousands of pounds that you're only going to wear once at a much photograph event. But your capsule wardrobe from M&S? 
I know. I agree with you. I'm not 100% sold on this. I'm not sure that I have actually rented items before. And as you say, they're always kind of event dresses or sort of that special piece that you might wear once and you don't want to pay a thousand pounds for it. So you'd rather pay 150 pounds maybe. Um, I know. I agree. I think that M&S is sort of trying to do something. I'm not sure that it's quite right in terms of its audience and who they're speaking to, um, but they are also not the only ones. So Selfridges, uh, which obviously has a higher range of, sorry, a, a bigger range of kind of higher priced and luxury items, but also Primark is doing um, kind of experimenting with different initiatives in this space. So I think they're all sort of trying to be seen to be doing something. Um, I'm, I completely agree with you, though. I'm not sure that you'd want to capsule wardrobe from M&S, but maybe it's a good way of kind of experimenting with the staple items that you might need and then deciding whether or not you actually want to invest in them in the future, potentially. Mm. Maybe that's one way that you could use the service. Talking about M&S's target market, I mean, that's traditionally been kind of middle-aged women, although that's firstly not a bad thing and secondly not necessarily (laughs) still true. But I wonder if they are the target audience for their latest initiative, which is a, a virtual AI model influencer. Yeah, this is definitely dividing opinion. Um, so they have, as you said, MS Insiders, which is essentially a group of mostly stylists or fashion buyers, but internal staff members that kind of showcase on their website and on their social media accounts what they're wearing, how they're styling it. Um, and the latest insider that they've launched is someone named Mira. So it is a is someone who identifies as a female, I suppose. Um, but she is not real. So she's AI generated. She's created through a mix of photography and I think CGI. Um, and you know she's you know she looks kind of real, I suppose. She's got a fringe and dark brown hair, and she's quite attractive, I suppose. But um, I think it's a bit of a confused approach. A lot of people are sort of criticizing it for, you know, what is what is Marks and Spencer actually doing? What's the purpose here? Why why bother, I suppose? Like the whole idea of M&S Insiders was to kind of showcase real people from their stores wearing clothing that they stock and have made. So why suddenly introduce Mira? What's the point? It all does seem a little odd. Rebecca, thank you very much indeed. That is Rebecca Tay talking to us from Australia. You're with The Globalist on Monocle 24. And finally, today marks the start of the London Korean Film Festival, currently in its 17th edition. 44 films will be played across 10 cinemas around London. Well, Unju Lee is the director of the London Korean Film Festival. She dropped into Midori House to discuss the festival and the vast interest in Korean cinema at the moment with Monocle's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Let's find out more. It feels, at least in London, that there's so much interest in Korean culture, Korean film... At the moment, I went to the V&A exhibition Hallyu, which was amazing, which covers kind of everything, K-pop, K-drama, but also kind of Korean beauty and fashion. Firstly, could you tell me a little bit about your collaboration with the with the V&A for the festival? Oh, yeah. So uh, it's very good to hear that you already been to V&A exhibition. So I also went there. I really liked it. And then uh, also they have some Korean film section there. So it was very interesting, like Parasite set, something like that. So we uh, collaborated with the V&A team uh, even before they're starting to um, making the exhibition ideas and curating uh, process. So so after uh, the exhibition opening, we uh, we uh, collaborate with them, screening one of our film as a special screening. So uh, director Chae Dong Un's uh, The Thieves. And 
what do you think has driven this particular moment that there is so much interest in not just Korean film but lots lots of different aspects of Korean culture and not just in London but around the world? Yeah, so I think especially Korean cinema and TV is really adding greatly to the Korean culture impact on the world stage. And K-pop, KBT already popular, but I think uh, Parasite success and then Squid Game, <laughs> it really helped to um, increase the interest for sure. But it, I think also it helped to bring a new audience to the Korean cinema and TV because I've heard about, oh, this is my first experience of Korean film. So last few years, a lot of new audience joined to our festival. So also we can feel that, how getting uh, people really exciting about it. And then also if I need to find the why, the reason why, because I think there is a unique way of Korean storytelling. Korean storytelling, like, gain sympathy from the audience by digging into more emotions and relationship with characters. So that's a perfect example of the Squid Game. So you can feel their emotion and anger. Also, they are more like uh, common people uh, from outside. So you can feel, more, I think, more engaged and then resonate with the character. That's, I think, a um, very important thing. And you have a particular focus this year on highlighting um, the work of f- women and female talent in as part of the festival. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Uh, yes, uh, it's very exciting to bring a lot of like female-directed film because we found that a lot of uh, female filmmakers are focusing on the feminist themes a lot recently. So we selected um, two feature films and four short films and also collaborate with the Seoul International One Film Festival. So um, so we can give them opportunity showing their uh, films. And then, interestingly, we found that there are some common themes around like woman's and daughter relationship. And also one of our highlight films, Kyung-ha's Daughter, is about also... Um, digital sex crime in Korea, but it's not only focusing on the crime itself, it's also they show how um, mother and daughter react after that crime happens and then how they overcome together. So uh, it shows very um, uh, emotionally, and but still uh, not only focusing on the crime, it's a very, I think it's very beautifully shot. So um, I think really, uh, we are really happy to uh, bring the best the female directed film in Korea this year. Yeah. Just finally, you have blockbusters and independents and lots of different types of films and you also have documentaries. What kind of things could people learn about if they if they come and see some of those documentaries? Uh, we yes, uh, we have a uh, three documentary film this year. One of my recommendation is I More, directed by Ihira. is a portrayal documentary about Draken named More. Uh, the more dreamed about to be a ballerina and he decided to be a drag queen and then he shows that how he survived in Korean society as a drag queen so actually it's very beautiful and he's in Paris now so he sadly couldn't join us for the screening but um, still we are really happy to showing this beautiful uh, documentary to UK audience Joe Lee there in conversation with Monocle's Sophie Monahan-Coombs. The festival runs until the 17th of November. And that's it from us today. Thanks to our producers, Emma Searle, Carlotta Ribello and Sophie Monahan-Coombs, our researchers, Lillian Fawcett, Emily Sands and our studio manager, Callum McLean. I'm Georgina Godwin.
Thanks for listening.